Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast and this week we'll be looking back on the French Grand Prix at Le Mans. I'm Stephen English and I'll be joined today by Neil Morrison and Neil it's a bit of a disappointment that we don't have Manuel Pacino, we don't have David Emmett, we don't have Adam Wheeler, it's stuck with two commentators for the week. <laughs> Down to the skeleton crew I'm afraid Stephen and uh, yeah two Irish accents to try and decipher for all of our listeners out there. Not an easy task at the best of times. Uh, we'll try and keep it as quick as we can then today, but uh, an interesting weekend nonetheless in Le Mans. What, what was your initial thoughts on the weekend, Neil? Um, a little bit of disappointment, I guess. Uh, you look at the race and it wasn't uh, it wasn't a vintage MotoGP outing. Um, it had promised so much with Zarco and Paul, um, with Davizioso probably having the best pace of anyone in the field. And you rather fancied that it was going to be a bit of a three-way shootout between those guys with a bit of a veritable supporting cast from Petrucci and Lorenzo and, and, and you know, maybe one or two others. Um, but as it was, the early crashes for Davizioso and then Zarco crashing out just as Marquez had gone by, you know, it was really inevitable from there that Mark was going to go on and uh, ease away. And three uh, consecutive race wins for Mark now. Probably three tracks, well, two tracks that you didn't expect him to win at at Jerez and Le Mans, two places he struggled at in recent years. Um, the writing seems to be on the wall and it's going to take a, something really spectacular to stop him running off and winning this championship by a mile. Yeah, and that's where we'll start with uh, this week's show, Neil. And it really was a case of at Le Mans, we went from having potentially one of the best races that we'll see for years to in the space of about two laps, just as you said, it going from all of the, the buzz just being taken straight out of Le Mans with whether it was Zarco, whether it was Davi. And uh, basically, as you said, Mark then just able to pull away and open up that gap and just extend that championship lead. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I've heard... Uh grandstand go from sheer madness to total silence like I did when Zarco fell out of the action obviously the media centre at Le Mans is um, right opposite the, the big grandstand which is across the way and that had just been a hive of activity the whole the whole day the whole weekend in fact you know all the way through Saturday with um, Zarco taking pole position uh, up in Sunday morning you could tell it was really building up to the big showcase race and yeah it just didn't quite turn out that way sadly um, a real undovy like mistake from him so early in the race um, he said he had been basically he'd seen how aggressive Zarko was in the opening laps and he knew that he was absolutely on the limit with his front tyre and he thought that he had to get to the front basically as soon as possible and with Lorenzo leading the race and Zarko second when Dovi moved by Zarko we thought right let's put Lorenzo in between us avoid a situation like Jerez where I'm getting held up by my teammate and as soon as he had basically um, hit the front he made the smallest of mistakes running slightly wide down into turn six. He insisted that he wasn't pushing that hard. He said he was at around 80% of his uh, his full potential at that point. And then it just all fell away from him. And yeah, two DNFs, two real costly DNFs on the trot for Davizioso. And he's uh, now, I think, languishing somewhere ninth, like ninth in the championship. It's going to be a long, long way back for him. Yeah, this really was a case of, as you said there, Neil, just uh, reacting to things around him, which we haven't really seen Dobby do over the last few years. He sticks to his game plan pretty much regimentally through a race, but Hareth on his mind, and then, as you said, with Zarco having pushed his way through to the front, it really did try and change what he was looking to do. Yeah, and it promised to be the perfect weekend in many respects. It was obviously the announcement that he was going to continue with Ducati for 2019-2020. Uh, no numbers were confirmed, but we can assume that he's on a pretty healthy, handy deal with them, uh, you know, earning a salary that's a lot higher than what he was on or what he is on at the moment. Um, 
and he'd, yeah, he'd just been so fast, so confident on Saturday evening, really uh, was looking at his pace in FP4 and he was even ahead of Marquez. Um, and you have two tracks now, really, we've gone to in the past three weeks or two weeks, um, two tracks that have historically been quite difficult for Ducati and always been right there and has had the pace to finish second at worst and possibly even win at Le Mans. So there are real positives there. It's just that uh, luck isn't quite going. Nothing, something's not quite working at the moment. And uh, as you just mentioned, Stevie, it's not It's not like Davidson was to make that mistake. I'm trying to think back to the last time where he made a mistake in a race that was so costly, which which you know led to him crashing out. And I think you're looking all the way back uh, to maybe 2016, some way back anyway. Um, so and it just came right at the, the worst moment because looking at the next run of tracks, I mean, there was a, a test at Mugello before Le Mans, and by all accounts, Marquez was absolutely sensationally fast there under the lap record consistently. Um, and then Mello after that, you know, we could be looking at the title more or less being over by the time we get to Aston. Yeah, and as you said, it is very rare for Dobby to have an instant of his own making, but uh, I think the last time that I remember him crashing out of a race would have been Coda two years ago, and that wasn't his fault either. So it's it's one of those instances where for Dobby, this really is just... Uh, it's adding to all those challenges because I think he finds himself by 50 points down in the championship. And as you said, Neil, the last two rounds, he had the chances of picking up 40 points. And, uh, and now it all just starts to slide away from him. And that's uh, really been the advantage for Marquez. He hasn't made those mistakes and he's been able just to open up, I think it's 56, 46 point lead at the top of the standings now. And uh, as you said, being able to win at a couple of tracks where he definitely wasn't favoured going into them. Yeah, and it's, it's testament to just how good that Honda engine is in 2018 i think we could probably look all the way back to well 2014 is the last time mark had a, a really really good bike arguably the best bike on the grid you know the last three seasons he's arguably been fighting against it um on yeah on the part machinery machinery that isn't the easiest to ride it doesn't accelerate well is a bit of an animal a bit of a handful um and now that he's on a sorted piece of equipment He's just, uh, he's able to be so consistent and so fast and so measured, so controlled. We saw in, at Jerez and again this weekend, you know, the difficulty people had passing Lorenzo at the start of the race or people had passing Zarco at the start of the race. And Marquez just made it look so easy, didn't look like he was flustered in any way and ended up winning both of those races with what I think is probably still something in reserve. And when you look at Mark in the paddock as well, Neil, obviously you've been at pretty much every race for the last three, four years. And... What's his demeanour like whenever he talks to the journalists, whenever you see him in the pet box? Relaxed, um, you know, usual, sort of jovial. Um, yeah, he just looks very relaxed and extremely confident. Um, and it's, it's, it's confidence going everywhere now. You know, it's, it's every track we're at, you know. And I think if you look at how the championship has gone, uh, if you take away that moment of madness in Argentina or several moments of madness, um, you're looking at a guy that's, won every race bar uh, Qatar and uh, he was only second there so yeah he knows he's in a good place and uh, I guess his position has helped somewhat by the fact none of his rivals can get any sort of consistency together yeah and just those couple of words that you said there Neil he's relaxed he's confident he is pretty much the complete package now and that's the exact opposite of the guy that we're going to talk about next Johan Zarco where we know the pace is there but he definitely wasn't relaxed this weekend you could see at the start of the race in particular just how stressed he was to get to the front we, we saw him ride 
a lot more ragged and aggressive than we've seen him in the past. Yeah, he was. I mean, Zarko's known for being an aggressive rider, a tough rider, rider that likes to be on the limit. Um, and I think this was a race he just wouldn't accept finishing second in this race. And I think he had made that decision before the race started. Uh, if this was a race, if you took this weekend and, and put it in a you know a different location in um, Italy or in Spain, I think Zarco comes away with a second place or a third place because to his you know to his great credit, he hasn't been making those kinds of mistakes either in races. And that indeed was his first crash out of a race, um, his first DNF since uh, Qatar at the beginning of last year. You know, from and for a rookie coming into the MotoGP class, that's quite impressive consistency, a really strong run of point scoring finishes he had put together. Um, but yeah, he managed the weekend just so perfectly up until qualifying. He was fast in all the free practice. He was sensational in qualifying. I mean, Marquez really uh, said afterwards that he thought his, um, I think it was his penultimate lap or in qualifying was definitely enough for Paul. And when he saw that Zarko's name was ahead of his on one of the timing screens, he couldn't believe it. And he thought, oh God, I have to go again here and do something else. Uh, so to get Paul in that respect was really something else. Very impressive. Yeah, that pole lap was one of the best we've seen in a couple of years as well. Like we're used to seeing Marquez pull a lap like that out of the bag, but uh, Zarko's lap for me was probably the most impressive that we've seen in the last couple of years. Mm. With the pressure on to be able to do what he did in that in that instance, but it did look like just the pressure just was too much for him as well this weekend. Yeah, I think so. Um, and as you could see with the the movie Star Bikes, the Yamaha unlike recent years, wasn't the best bike to have uh, this year. And he said that he's really missing something in acceleration when compared to the Ducati, compared to Lorenzo. And he was just having to push it. It's on, almost sounded like listening to the Honda riders of the past few years. He said he was losing so much in acceleration out of the, the final corner that he was having to do so much work on the brakes and was then starting to overstress that front tire a little bit. And yeah, eventually that was his undoing. Um, if he had just waited... A couple of laps and not got too stressed about getting to the front early on um i think his pace was really good with a lighter fuel load but yeah i think uh, it was it was interesting hearing him speak after the race he said about listening to the national anthem on the line and he said he had to just take a deep breath from it all and say okay we're going to do our own race and try not to think about what everything else that's going on and usually i think in that situation he's just thinking about the race without any distraction so uh, it was a quite an exceptional circumstance because in 2017, he was fast and he knew he had the, the potential to be on the podium. But I don't think many people were expecting him to win the race. A good, healthy chunk of the crowd on Sunday were turning up there expecting him to be on the top of the podium. And uh, I think he felt that. Yeah, it definitely looked like he did. And you could sense, the, as you said earlier as well, Neil, just how much Levon deflated the second that he crashed. And he wasn't the only crasher this weekend over 100 crashes throughout the course of the weekend and it really was a, a weekend of attrition for everyone. Yeah, 109 crashes across the race weekend. Easily the, the highest number we've had this year. Um, yeah, it was uh, only 56, I think, overall at uh, the Spanish Grand Prix in Jerez. And yeah, Le Mans obviously is a very critical track in terms of braking. It puts so much emphasis on getting your braking markers right. Um, it puts a lot of stress on the front end of the motorbike. And we just saw countless um, front end falls, even a couple of high sides. And it seems like the tires reacting just a little bit strangely um, to the temperatures and to the track. And yeah, there was a 
real abnormal number of falls across all of free practice qualifying and the race indeed on Sunday. One of the most spectacular crashes that we've ever seen as well this weekend. <laughs> yes, Cal Crutzlow, I take it you're referring to. Uh, well, we'll get to Cal in a second, but yeah, 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 yeah. Jakob Kornfeld's crash as well, or almost crashed, unbelievable save through the through the final corner. Yeah, sure, that was in the Moto3 race, yeah, Nina Bastianini lost, uh, I don't know if he lost the front, lost the rear of his Honda, I think the, the rear of his uh, Honda slid round on the exit and Jakob Kornfeld was just right behind him and uh, somehow Bastianini's Honda was just at the right angle for Kornfeld to launch right up over him at basically looked like we were watching a, a supercross race are you, are you glad was... that you weren't commentating on that race <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i think you might have heard a few uh, high-pitched squeals at that point if i was behind the mic <laughs> credit to uh, steve day and matt burt for uh, managing to keep their voices in check during that moment um but yeah that was that was quite something i've seen uh, i've seen a tweet from marquez calling that the best save ever so if he's saying it then it was something special and then obviously we saw something special from Cal Crutchlow as well, just to take the start on Sunday and to be able to finish inside the top 10, given how vicious a high side he had on Saturday. Yeah, it was heroic stuff from Cal, really heroic. Um, we always know that he's as tough as they come. That story about him breaking his foot back in Silverstone in 2010, I think it was, or maybe 2011, um, riding the next day, coming through the field and, and securing a sixth place finish. You know, we know that Cal's tough and... Um, but when you listen back to the sort of the details of, of the crash, he really was quite sure that he had broken his hip when when he impacted the ground um, after that huge high side. And the thing is, with that corner with Garage Ver, the turnate on the exit of it, like the, the track does dip down. So he high sided kind of mid corner um, coming around to hit the second apex. You know, he was flung up in the air. And then I think the sheer size of his fall was uh, almost uh, exaggerated by the, the track going away there so he fell even further and he kind of fell on his lower back and yeah he thought that for quite a while he had he had broken that hip was in extreme pain had to spend a night in the hospital he had some blood in his lung uh, pretty serious contusion on his lower back and yeah you could see he was in real discomfort trying to get around said he was just riding around in the opening laps. And obviously that is a, that's a classic MotoGP rider's phrase for you. You know, he was about a second off the pace of the leading guys and that is riding around. <laughs> but he, he played it real, um, really intelligently. Said that if he crashed again, he was going to be in big trouble. And um, to manage to sort of, uh, yeah, put himself in the middle of a big gaggle of riders, I think there was at the start of that race. Prilly, I think Paul Spargo's KTM was in there, Vinales was there, Rins on the Suzuki. Um, he just waited until the end, and then he made some really good progress. In eighth place, I think he finished two seconds back of Vinales, and Vinales won that race last year, so quite some going from Crutchlow. Yeah, and uh, you've mentioned Vinales there, and just to the, to the next point of conversation, really, is after this race, we're five races into the season, but Vinales, even though he's the punchline of so many jokes right now he's second in the championship yeah yeah i think that goes to show uh the difficulty um with which the rest of the field or the field other than marquez are having at putting some decent results together either you are fast but crashing a lot uh, like davizioso um or you're putting really solid fourth fifth sixth place finishes together like jack miller or danilo petrucci um or you're just kind of some way off the pace. Um, 
like Vinales, um, finishing seventh, eighth, I think, or, you know, a couple of, he had one good podium finish in uh, in America and then two really lackluster uh, showings at Hareth and uh, at Le Mans. And he was quite fortunate to get those places, really, because he benefited from guys crashing out in front of him. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a strange championship, I think, from second all the way down to ninth. There's maybe 12, 15 points in it, Steve. I'm not sure exactly the, the numbers. Ah, okay. So yeah, from second to ninth in the championship, thirteen points covering all those riders, and um, yeah, not one of them. I mean, you've got Rossi in fourth, Vinales second. The movie star Yamahas have had, I would say, an absolutely disastrous opening to the season, yet they still find themselves up there. And I think that's just testament to well, David Hughes are not finding his his consistency. Zarco obviously crashed out of that last race. Um, guys like Rins who showed potential in the first. You know, a couple of races in preseason, having a, a lot of falls. Um, yeah, other than Marquez, no one's really putting it together. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned as well, Neil, the Pramac riders just having their consistent finishes. We'll get to them in the next section as well. But for Jack Miller and for Petrucci, particularly this weekend, really was an impressive performance. Yeah, yeah, up there with his, you know, one of, definitely one of his best showings in the dry. Uh, maybe take away Bugello last year and um, where he finished third. But um, yeah, it was really impressive he was uh, on the front row you could arguably say it was his most complete MotoGP weekend to date um, he went with the soft front the soft rear tyre and I was expecting him to drop away big time in the closing laps of the race we all know that Petrucci's obviously a very aggressive rider with a throttle he's quite heavy compared to the guys that he's up riding against every week and um, he has spent a lot of time over the preseason and the winter trying to work on his throttle technique and make sure that he can look after that rear tyre a little bit better. And we saw it really in evidence again today, or sorry, on Sunday, because he was uh, he was quick. Rossi was at one point gaining towards him and you felt that he had second place within his race, but Petrucci kept him at arm's length quite easily, really. And um, yeah, second place just at the right time as well, because there's so much, we're probably going to come on to this later, Steve, but there's so much um, speculation now regarding his plans for 2019 and the plans of Ducati indeed, um, that this is the, the perfect time to, to post a result like that. Yeah, and there's no point delaying the inevitable, Neil. Let's talk about the silly season for next year. And as you said, at uh, at Le Mans, we did hear Petrucci being talked about once again by Paolo Ciabatti and by Ducati in terms of being the man that could replace Lorenzo if he leaves. Yep, it seems that Petrucci is the, is the man that's going to the factory squad, you would have to say, if you had to hedge a bet right now. He has an option, well, he basically has an option with um, Ducati, which they only they can exercise, um, which runs until the end of June. And that option says that they can put him in the factory team for 2019 if they feel his performances have warranted it. Um, I spoke to Paolo Ciabatti um, uh, on Sunday evening, and he said that the, the decision isn't final. Um, they're still working with Lorenzo. They still have hopes for Lorenzo, but they've come to a sort of unanimous decision with the rider that says, look, this can't continue. It's good for, it's not good for you. It's not good for me. You're finishing sixth place when guys like Miller and Petrucci are ahead of you. It's just not working. And if it's not working now, then why continue this for two more years? Um, I still think they're, Lorenzo and Ducati are f quite far off in terms of how they value one another. And, you know, like salary-wise, uh, I think Lorenzo still feels that he should merit a, quite a considerable contract and Ducati feel the contrary. 
Um, after all, he still hasn't won a race. He's only had two podiums in that bike. Um, and his finishes this year just haven't been just haven't been good. You know, take away Hareth and it's been it's been worse than the end of last year. Um, there hasn't really been any progress at all. So, yeah, you'd have to say, Lorenzo, it's looking like he's going to be out of Ducati. Um, Petrucci would probably step up and then Miller would take Petrucci's slot in the Pramac squad um, as the, the sort of the third factory bike. Yeah, and so, of course, the yeah. fourth Ducati then is obviously, Bagnaia is already being confirmed at Pramac as well. And for Lorenzo, it definitely does look like, as you said, he's got two rounds now to try and prove his worth. But even if he could, even if he brings something up, it's still going to be just lightning in a bottle compared to what we've seen over the last couple of couple of years so far. Yeah, exactly. And by now, he certainly would have thought that he could have challenged for the title, and he's so far off that. Um, and you know, Le Mans. I think he's won six times at Le Mans. It's one of his best tracks. We saw with Petrucci, we saw with Davizioso just how strong that bike was, and he still can't make it work for him. He's saying that the the 2018 bike is very physical to ride, especially on the brakes. And he's just getting really, really tired physically um, when he is uh, when he's trying to break. And he said he's training harder than ever. It's nothing to do with the lack of training. It's just a completely different style of, of riding the bike and he hasn't adapted to it yet. So um, we could be looking at a situation here where Lorenzo possibly isn't on the grid for 2019. And I really didn't think we would have got to that situation. Um, but Suzuki have uh, made their interest in Moto3 world champion and sensation, I guess you could say, in the Moto2 class, Joanne Mir. Um, and it seems that it's going to be a straight shoot-up between Lorenzo and Mir for that second Suzuki slot. And if Mir gets it, then Lorenzo's only other option you'd feel would be Danny Pedrosa's place and whether Honda would want to sign Jorge Lorenzo, the partner Mark Marquez, um, is, well, very debatable indeed. And obviously, over the course of the last year, Neil, any time that we talked to people inside Honda and HRC, one name that did come up quite a bit was Juan Mir, that he could be that next young Spaniard to come through and give them the talent line once Marquez decides to take up a new challenge or anything like that. It'd be a bit of a surprise to see him not move to Honda after his links to them in the past, his links to you know their sponsors as well. But uh, definitely the Suzuki rumour seems to be getting more and more legs. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, it's difficult to know what to believe. If you read some parts of the Spanish press, Mir has a pre-contract agreement with Honda that he signed at the end of last year uh, when he had won his Moto3 World Championship that gives Honda the first option. I'd actually heard from someone that usually knows these things and is very well connected within the paddock that Suzuki had actually signed a pre-contract agreement. Mir's manager, Paco Sanchez, came out today and said they've, got, uh, they've made no... Uh, pre-contract signings whatsoever. So it's basically a straight shootout between three factories, Ducati, Honda and Suzuki. But I spoke to Giabatti on Sunday night and he said that Ducati basically can't offer Mir what he wants, which is a place in a factory team. Um, Sanchez, Mir's manager, also said that there's a 90% chance that he'll be in MotoGP next year. So you have to believe it's going to be one of those two slots. Um, and I think it makes sense for Honda. I mean, uh, you know, Pedroza, for all his speed has proven again that even though he started this season with everything right, it's just not going to work for him. And if you've got someone like Marquez, why not place uh, place your trust in a, a, a rookie um, who's going to take a year to learn the ropes, maybe two years. Um, if you've got Marquez winning races, you can quietly build up a guy like Mir uh, in the second seat in your squad. So 
yes, whether he goes to Honda or Suzuki, well, Suzuki said they want to make a, a decision before Mugello. So we shall be hearing something a little more about that uh, in the coming days. We did, of course, see that the other Suzuki seats did get filled this weekend with Alex Rins. And obviously, for Suzuki, one of the key factors is going to come down to cost. And they would definitely be able to get Juan Mir at a much lower rate than what they pay for Lorenzo. That's a small factory. That's also something that's probably going to factor into it. But as you said, Neil, the Honda links look a lot stronger for Mir. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really I honestly don't know which uh, which one to believe, whether, you know, Suzuki or Honda uh, are, are best place to sign him. Um, you're absolutely right. Money, I think, is a big factor. Lorenzo would probably cost somewhere in the region of five, six million euros a year. Mir would come at a snip. Um, yeah, after they signed Iannone, that was a big money signing that just didn't really work out. Okay, Iannone's had a couple of podiums recently, but overall it's not been... I don't think it's been great. And I think Suzuki is genuinely quite wary of signing someone that could maybe be quite difficult to work with. Lorenzo and Ducati, well, Ducati found out that Lorenzo isn't easy to easy to work with. Um, you could tell that uh, the atmosphere in all of Ducati was really quite bad in the first couple of races just because Lorenzo was having such a hard time of it. Um, I think he would go to a place like Suzuki and automatically think that he's going to be the number one rider and Brivio spent so much effort trying to create a nice family, positive environment within that garage. And Lorenzo might not fit that. One thing as well about Suzuki is there has been a lot of talk at times about an internal rift as well between the Japanese and the Italians. And then you put someone like Lorenzo into that situation as well. And that could be another factor. Sure. I mean, you sign Lorenzo and you think like this could be a marriage made in heaven, a sweet handling bike that on paper should suit his riding style perfectly. Um, but I guess it could be a risk because it's a lot of money and there's that issue with maybe a personality clash. Rins has obviously established himself as a very good rider, but Lorenzo will come in and expect to be treated perhaps as the number one. Um, that's something to consider as well. Um, but you kind of feel that if they've... Uh, Managed the only for the last 18 months, then they're basically prepared to manage anyone. Um, they had success with taking a rider who has done one year Moto2. Great success, actually, with Vinales. And Vinales proved that if you're talented enough, you can be up and running in the top six of MotoGP in your first year, even if you're still just 20 years old. So that could be a good option as well. But I, I just think that having Rins as a lead rider, he's still quite inexperienced. You know, he's shown this year that. He's crashed quite a lot. He was over 25 seconds off the race winner at Le Mans. Um, yeah, I'm not sure whether Rins and Mir are going to get you the kind of results that you need. As If you're a factory like Suzuki now in your fifth year in the Premier Class. And uh, obviously, Neil, you mentioned Ian One there as well, being the big money move that Suzuki have made in the past. And uh, he looks definite to be the odd man out in all this situation and you'd imagine Aprilia is his most likely landing point? Seems that way, yeah. Aprilia um, admitted they're speaking to several riders about 2019. Um, Ian Oney and Petrucci were those riders. Um, that is why I think Petrucci is in a bit of a rush to find out what is going on uh, with his future because, um, well, he knows that Aprilia offer won't be there for much longer. If, uh, well, if Ian Oney takes it and I would say the smart money is on Ian only going there. Um, because I think although Suzuki 
haven't officially uh, cut ties with him. I think it, it makes sense for everyone involved, really. He's an Italian. Um, he's a bit of a talent. He'll go to Aprilia, who could probably offer him some decent money. Um, and if he's going there, then you would have to imagine Lorenzo's out because Petrucci's happy or feels confident that he's got that seat in the factory Ducati squad. And then, obviously, Neil, you mentioned that it's easy for the music to stop and be left without a chair. But Danny Pedrosa, he could easily be left without... Well, it looks certain that he's going to be left without a factory ride and he could easily be left without a decent seat at all. Mm. Yeah, it's quite strange to be sat here contemplating a grid, next year's grid, with maybe one of either Pedrosa or Lorenzo uh, not present. You know, two of the two of the names that dominated the MotoGP class for so many years. Um, and I can't see Pedrosa going to ride for a satellite team. I, I kind of feel, you know, you just think like he's been in the, the, the Repsol team for 13 years to take a step down to a factory or to a satellite team. Just, I'm not sure that would interest him, that would motivate him. I could be wrong. Um, but you have to imagine there's only going to be four Hondas in the grid next year. Cal's already signed up. Um, Takanakagami, I mean, is done quite well in places you can't imagine Honda would be keen to get rid of him so yeah, it's tough to know I think you would have to say that um, if Mia goes to Suzuki and Honda stays with Pedroza then Lorenzo's without a ride and if Mia goes to Honda Lorenzo to Suzuki Pedroza without a ride so yeah I did see some interesting comments from Alberto Puj um, after the race on Sunday he was speaking to Spanish TV talking Lorenzo up saying that uh, you know he's a great champion he's a man with uh, great honour great courage and um you know it's not really it's not great to see him struggling the way he is struggling and i was wondering whether that in some ways could open the door would it be possible for lorenzo to go to, to repsol but i'm not sure again pure speculation and that also seems like a bike that would be just as difficult for a rider with lorenzo's style as the ducati yeah yeah they're not they're not so dependent on crazy late braking like they have been in the past you know they've got a really good motor now that accelerates really well has great top speed um it could be interesting i definitely don't think it would be as tough for lorenzo to go to honda now as it would have been say a year ago or two years ago but well yeah it's tough to know would marquez want lorenzo to come and, and ride with him i'm really not too sure well, as you can see, there's still plenty to be decided, even though we've got most of the grid already filled for next year. But a lot of interest still to come up in terms of who goes where for 2019. But Neil, we'll look at the Le Mans weekend in terms of winners and losers. So who's your big winner from the weekend? Um, ah, it's tough to say. I mean, it's tough to look past Marquez because it was just the perfect weekend in so many respects. He won at a track. He's really struggled that for the past three years. Two of his main rivals in the championship crashed out. He looked extremely comfortable. He barely broke sweat. Um, yeah, so I think it's really, really difficult to look past Marquez. It was just the perfect weekend in so many respects. Um, I have to give a shout-out, though. A shout-out to Miguel Oliveira as well, because I think Oliveira is basically keeping the Moto2 championship race alive and interesting in some respects while that KTM chassis is some way off uh, where it should be and I think it's only through Oliveira's well brilliance really that uh, he is amassing a lot of top six finishes and podiums on a bike that really shouldn't be there at the moment and you look at the struggles of Brad Binder and Sam Lowe's in the Moto2 class it really underlines the step forward Calix have taken and KTM just haven't quite got the front end feeling of that bike sorted and I think for Oliveira to have done 
what he's done in recent rounds. Uh, he's always been rubbish at Le Mans. He managed to come out of there with a strong top six finish and really good damage limitation ride. Um, I think Oliveira deserves a special mention as well because I think KTM are going to bring something quite uh, well, quite big for their Moto2 riders to test in the coming weeks. I don't think Peko Bagnaia is going to have it as easy as he has had for the first uh, part of the season. I think you know KTM will have a bit of a revival. And I think this first part of the season where Oliveira has been consistent and racked up solid top six finishes will be crucial come the end of the year. So yeah, special shout out for uh, Oliveira. But I think Marquez, it would be tough to uh, to look past him. What about you, Steve? Uh, well, as you said, it's tough to look past Marquez. But I'm going to give it to Digia, to be honest. He needs to come up with a win somehow. And <laughs> uh, we saw in the Grassini press release that he was listed as the moral winner of the Moto3 race. And uh, he actually, it, I'm giving him this just because he handled the adversity of being given a time penalty so well. And uh, he was very graceful in defeat whenever it, it could easily have just gotten too much for him. So I'll say for Digia in, uh, in my winners and losers, but uh, the loser of the weekend yeah. for me. Uh, just sorry, when, you talk, when you're talking about Digia, Steve, I don't know if you, you saw the, after the race in Moto3, the camera did cut to him in pit lane just as he had been told that, you know, he had received that time penalty. And it was actually like watching that scene in Platoon where Willem Dafoe drops to his <laughs> knees and like puts his hands through the air. <laughs> it was just so cruel watching a young man like that being deprived. He, he, that really has been like a big monkey on his back for so long and got that first one. He did it so brilliantly, outbreak Bezeki into that penultimate corner. Um, and for it to be taken away was was cruel. You have to be, you have to say it's a proper gor gorilla on his back now at this stage. But uh, <laughs> he gets the chance to try and put it to right soon enough in the next round. But uh, the loser for me, I can't look past Ovi for this one, Neil. Just for all the reasons we've already said, like that's two races in a row where he's had a crash that's cost him a lot of points, and we're looking at a situation now where Mark is opened up a comfortable championship lead and uh, Dovi was always going to be his most likely competitor for that championship and now suddenly he's very much adrift in ninth place in the standings. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to argue with that, you know, it was um it should have been that as we mentioned earlier that perfect weekend signed the the uh, renewal with Ducati and really had the pace to go and take Marquez on to throw it away like that to drop to ninth in the overall standings just is not uh, something you would really expect with Dovi I'm going to although I agree with that's a good choice Steve I'm going to go with um, Maverick Vinales as the big loser of the weekend uh, the race winner the man that's second in the championship Neil <laughs> he's shown no pace whatsoever this year and he's second in the championship surely he's a big winner the man second in the championship at 18 seconds behind his teammate Valentino Rossi at the checkered flag. Uh, the man that won the race at Le Mans last year uh, with, uh, well, after securing a pole position and showing that uh, he was going to boss it. A full year now since Vinales has won a MotoGP race. And could you have envisioned this time a year ago saying that Vinales would have gone a full year without racking up another victory? It would have been really difficult to believe at that point. And this now seems to be something that's more than just the Yamaha having rear traction issues, having grip issues. Vinales was making some very pointed comments after the race at Jerez, after the race at Le Mans, saying that the means of working, the working method inside his side of the garage is not what it should be. Um, he was asked why Rossi was so far ahead and he, he basically bluntly stated that they just work better. They managed to attack the weekend and work at it in a better way. His team came up with better solutions for managing the lack of rear traction. Um, 
at her rest, he said something like, you know, I have to, I'm being told to ride in a sort of myriad of different ways. One minute they're telling me to ride like Lorenzo, be silky smooth. Another time they're telling me to, right, you have to ride aggressively now and try this different setup. It seems that he's getting rather fed up with um, the lack of answers that his team can provide for these issues that he's having. And um, yeah, to finish 23 seconds back at Marquez at a track that, you know, has historically been really strong for him and Yamaha is just, desperate he said that it was even worse than Hareth that outing and he described the first couple of laps of the race as horrible he was outside the top 12 I think at one point um, and things are not looking good I mean it, it is strange to say that I know about the man that's second in the championship but we are dealing with quite a unique sort of set of circumstances here where the championship really doesn't tell the full story and and, and Vinales has has put on a brave face let's say when speaking to the media um, I think that has been one aspect of his character that he's been working on to try and present a more um, approachable person, a more reasonable, level-headed person, especially in his dealings with us anyway. Um, but that was just completely gone on Sunday. He was back to the sulky, you know, Marty uh, guy that we saw so frequently last year. And yeah, Vinala is a big loser, I think. And it's, 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 you know, we're going to Modelo next. The test there, I think the Yamaha has struggled a lot. Uh, we're going to uh, Montmelo, his home race after that. And we know what a disaster Montmelo was last year. So it doesn't look like it's going to be, going to get any better anytime soon. So Vinal is my big loser. Can't uh, argue with that. But I'm going to say, I'm going to still say he's one of the big winners, Neil, for having such a terrible <laughs> start to the year and still be second in the championship. It's you pretty good. contrarian, you. Uh, I think for the likes of Vinales, well, you're dead right insofar as it's been such a horrendous year. Apart from that one bright spot in Texas, it's just been one thing after the other. And if you, as you said, if you go back all the way through to last year from Le Mans home, onwards, it really has just been a struggle for him. And that's the man that last year, if you remember, in winter testing topped every day and looked like he was ready to absolutely dominate the first two rounds last year. Looked really strong and then it's all suddenly started to come off one one race weekend after the other. And uh, it's also another t situation where we've seen Valentino Rossi just apply that mental pressure on his teammate. And it's hard not to look at it and think that it hasn't worked. Yeah, it yeah, definitely hasn't worked. And it's getting to the stage now where he's still looking for, he's, he's you know, Vinales never thinks that the, the issue is him, that he's not riding the bike well enough or he's not riding in the correct way. And... He's going to start looking for for scapegoats and for for you know um, it might be quite a worrying time if you are you know someone working in that side of the box. Not a worrying time for the rest of us though, Neil. Just uh, for the next couple of weeks, we've got uh, busy schedules with uh, World Superbikes, the TT, and then obviously with Mugello and Catalonia for you. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a great time of the year. I love this time uh, around you know May June. You've got the Northwest, the TT to look forward to in the road racing season. Uh, the GPs are going to some of the best tracks on the calendar. Uh, World Superbike season's in full flow, going from Imola through to Donington Park. You know, it's just uh, something every weekend to, to really look forward to. And uh, Steve, you've got quite a busy time of it. Um, TT, Donington Park this weekend and uh, the TT just after that. Yeah, Donington then fly out to the TT on the Monday and there for... I think eight days and then it's Bruno for Superbikes. Come back from that and then you're pretty much just getting ready for Laguna World Superbikes as well. So this is the busy stretch of the year, but it's the best stretch of the year as well. Absolutely. And uh, we were having a brief conversation before we hit the record button. You were saying there's some interesting rumours doing the rounds in the World Superbike paddock at present. I heard a few whispers at uh, Le Mans, which sounded very interesting indeed. 
yeah, there's definitely a lot of rumours about what's going to happen next year. It looks like the GRT team could move up to uh, run a Yamaha and World Superbikes. And you'd imagine if that happens, the likes of Lucas Myers would definitely be well-placed to move up. And then plenty of rumours about Tom Sykes potentially moving to Yamaha for next year. Who takes his spot? Michael Vandermark's been talked a lot about that. We know that Eugene Laverty came very close to taking that ride a couple of years ago. But mm. uh, it'd be a surprise if Kawasaki go down that route. Now we've got uh, a lot of talk about BMW coming back next year with a new bike. So it certainly looks like over the next couple of weeks, once the GP silly season settles down, then the Superbike silly season really starts to kick off. Yeah, and Ducati, of course, coming back with, well, coming in with their V4 motorcycle for the first time. Uh, well, in what's of bike history, they'll have a V4 bike. Um, can you see them continuing with uh, Davies and uh, Melandry? There's some rumours I heard that they might be chasing a certain uh, Jonathan Ray. Well, I asked Johnny about it at the last round and he said, obviously, the Ducati has shown that uh, it would be an interesting project to be involved. And we saw the V4 actually testing in November last year with Lorenzo Zanetti and uh, all the riders all saying that uh, they were struggling to keep up with it on the back straight at Hareth. So immediately that bike's hitting the ground running. But uh, you'd be surprised to see Ducati move on from Davis. He's been able to win a lot of races for them. He still hasn't won that championship. And in fairness, it doesn't really look like he's going to do it this year with the margin that Ray's been able to open up already. But it would be a surprise to see them move on from Davis. Possibly less of a surprise to see them move on from Marco Melandri. But uh, you'd imagine that uh, with Michael Rubin and Rinaldi, they've got a young Italian that could potentially move on to the V4. Jonathan Ray would definitely be an interesting one if it did come to happen. But uh, I asked Ray whether or not it would be an important part of his legacy. And the first thing he said was, you know, your legacy is made by winning. And uh, I think for Ray, he knows that when the going's good, you got to get your winning done. And uh, he knows that Kawasaki's going to keep providing him everything he needs. Okay. Be interesting, though, if uh, we see Sykes maybe move on. Um, and Michael Vandermark coming away. It would be good, I think, for the series perhaps as well to see a couple of the leading names, uh, you know, jump ship and uh, try, their, try their hand at a different bike. Yeah, I think we definitely need to see something because we've had the same riders winning races for so long and uh, we need to see some sort of a change. If Sykes does move from Kawasaki, he's ridden the Yamaha in the past in World Superbikes. He's, he's, he's been talked about a few times being linked with that uh, project over the last few years already. So it would definitely be an interesting one if it did happen because also for Yamaha, it gives them an established barometer with which to judge everything else because We've spent the last three, four years looking at Michael Vandermark and Alex Lowe's and saying they're the two young riders to watch in that championship. And uh, we still don't really know how good either of them are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you, you kind of get the impression you still don't know how good the Yamaha is. I mean, um, well, that's the one it's, problem it's that you have. Yeah, it's a competitive package, but yeah, should it be, I mean, should it be consistently fighting with the Ducatis and Kawasaki's? Well, the one problem you have whenever you have young riders that haven't won a race is you don't really know the level that those riders are capable of doing and then also that then affects what you think the bike is capable of doing i don't think that if tom sykes jumps on that yamaha he's going to be five seconds up the road from what we've seen from vandermark and lowe's but he would give you an established known rider with which you can judge everything else by and you can judge the package up by i think the yamaha is strong enough to win races i think Assen couple of months ago was probably a good example of that where yeah. Vandermark probably should have won a race in, in Assen and just wasn't quite able to to finish it but that's that 
that's still that step that we're not sure of whether or not the bike was capable of winning or if it just seems that uh, you know van der Mark could put himself into the right position so it is a strange one still not to know three years into a project if the bike is good but the yamaha certainly has made big steps forward but now they're at the stage where they're at those laws of diminishing returns and they're really just closing in on what is capable of that bike yeah, and Ruben Rinaldi looked pretty handy at Imola, I must say. Um, you think he would be, he's ready for a you know full-time call-up to the, the World Superbike squad? Yeah, Rinaldi's shown that he's fast, and uh, we know that the Ducati is good. And uh, if he stays on a, on a package that's really strong, he'll have good results. But uh, he's, definitely, he's definitely raw. When you look at him on track, he's so aggressive with the bike, and uh, it's going to take time to, to bring that back. But when you talk to riders, crew chiefs, team bosses, the one thing they all say is that he's clearly got the talent for it. Okay, interesting. So keep uh, keep your eyes peeled, basically, uh, yeah, exactly. is what you're saying, and, Steve. And uh, the next round this weekend at Donington Park, it's definitely going to be one that if the Yamahas end up winning at Donington, you're not going to be surprised. If we have a challenger to Ray Davis and uh, the other front runners, it won't be it won't be a surprise. I think. Leon Camier back to full fitness. It'll be interesting to see what he can do in the Honda. Eugene Laverty's back. And uh, like he raced through the pain barrier in Imola. And now he's got another two weeks to get ready. The Aprilia's looked a lot stronger. So it'd be interesting to see what Laverty's able to do as well. It's definitely going to be worth keeping an eye on what happens in World Supers this weekend. Absolutely. Yeah, and I heard Laverty saying after the race in uh, Imola that Donington really should suit that bike a good deal more than Imola. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit more of a, a big 250 than uh, than anything, right? So you'd imagine down by Queen of Curves and up to uh, up through Schwantz, that should be a bit more in what in line with what it needs. Yeah, the one thing that Aprilia has changed this year is they've actually gone for a much softer mid-range power delivery compared to what they had in the past where it was all about getting the top end power it's now tuned just to be in the middle and that's clearly been one of the big factors that makes a big difference and uh, definitely they've had the potential to have a good result and they just haven't had the good results yet just for for hooker by crook but uh, it'll come soon for that team and they just need one good result you'd imagine to be able to really start building some momentum so it's definitely action-packed couple of weeks neil and uh, thanks for joining us on the paddock pass podcast yep thank you very much steve been good uh, having a bit of a chat bit of a catch-up yeah nice to be back on the show and uh, just remember for all the listeners if you want to follow us on twitter we're at paddock pass pod and you can follow us on facebook at paddock pass what is it neil <laughs> it's facebook.com forward slash paddock pass podcast so join us again in a couple of weeks time for the paddock pass podcast after the italian grand prix at Mugello. Boom. Italian Grand Prix. Oh, is it? Is it Mugello first? <laughs> Mugello, that, Mugello there you go. All right. Well, we'll change that then. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll go again, JB.